Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 355. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended FinTech. Before we get started, I want to talk about the 10th annual Lended FinTech USA event. We are so excited to be back in the financial capital of the world, New York City, in person on May 25th and 26th. It feels like fintech is on fire right now with so much change happening, and we will be distilling all that for you at New York's biggest fintech event of the year. We have our best lineup of keynote speakers ever with leaders from many of the most successful fintechs and incumbent banks. This is shaping up to be our biggest event ever as sponsorship support is off the charts. You know you need to be there, so find out more and register at lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Loveline Sadu. She is the CEO and founder of BM Technologies, formerly known as Bank Mobile. And Loveline is also the current winner of the FinTech Woman of the Year Award at the Lender FinTech Awards. And I wanted to get Loveline on because they have had just a, a really amazingly busy last year or two. You know, they spun out from Customers Bank. They then went public. They've now in the process of buying a bank. So it's been quite the journey, which we get into each one of those things in some depth. We also talk about the sort of the bank partnership model and why some fintechs are going the acquisition route and some are going the maintaining the partnership route. We talk about banking as a service specifically. She gives us an update on the on the T-Mobile partnership, which was pretty groundbreaking, and what other types of companies she thinks it would be suitable to go a similar route. And we talk about their college business, the college student business, which seems to be going really well. It was a fascinating episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the podcast, Loveline. Hey, Peter. Good to be back. Thank you. Okay, my pleasure. So, you know, it's been about three years since we chatted, but why don't we get started by giving the listeners sort of the explanation of sort of what is the core business of BM Technologies? Take us through the different verticals that you operate in. Sure, happy to do that. And, uh, you know, thanks, Peter. Also, it was great being at your conference in in Miami earlier this year and really appreciate the honor of uh, FinTech Woman of the Year. And it was such a delight and awesome conference. So thank you so much. And I'm so happy to be a part of Lendit. We're happy to have you. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. So about BM Technologies, um, we are, you know, one of the largest digital banking platforms and one of the largest banking as a service providers in the country today. We really had the privilege of a lot of, you know, milestones last year where we are one of the first neobanking fintechs to go public. We are one of the first that has a profitable business model and are now one of the first to really embrace a a bank charter and become a true fintech bank. And happy to talk more about that and the thinking around that if, if of interest during this conversation. You know, at the forefront, those are some of the milestones and big sort of evolution points, actually, in the last 12 months of, of where we've been and where we are now. And today, what's really leading to that profitable business model, most foundationally, is this idea of being able to build a business model around how do you get high volume customer acquisition at very low cost. And so today, we're acquiring bank customers at significantly, actually, less than $10 And so in a market where customer acquisition is so costly, 
you know, that is a huge competitive edge that we have been able to crack. And we do that, you are absolutely right, in three main verticals today. At a very high level, the first vertical is our higher education vertical, which is us working with and and contracting with over 750 colleges and universities across the country. We solve a pain point for them. And what that pain point is, is that they're dispersing billions of dollars a year in financial aid refunds. We help take that headache over for them. And in return, we get to really communicate with their students. Do they want to receive that money ACH to an existing bank account? Or do they have interest in opening a very competitively positioned bank mobile checking account? And through that vertical today, we're opening several hundred thousand accounts in a very attractive student demographic. And our strategy there is really to build a customer for life. Our second vertical is banking as a service. And so, you know, we've invested a lot in our own API-based, cloud-based digital banking platform. And in the banking as a service world, you've talked, I'm sure, a lot about it in the podcast, embedded finance has become you know, much more of an attractive business model. And we're equipped through the technology that we've built to be able to enable brands and other fintechs to be able to launch financial services products through an API-based approach or a white-label user interface. Mm-hmm. And we also, unlike a lot of technology providers, we're a bank seven years prior to going public last year and becoming a fintech. And so we have the banking operations, the compliance, the KYC, BSA, the fraud, the debit card issuance, the core processor, et cetera, under our umbrella. So we're a very unique uh, lead position within the BAS uh, landscape where we not only provide very cutting edge technology to enable these brands, but also the program management and the back office support of launching these types of complicated programs. And lastly, Our third vertical is niche direct-to-consumer. It's this idea that there are different consumer groups that may be underrepresented today. Uh, We've seen some neo-challenger banks go after certain demographics, whether it's LGBTQ, musicians, gig workers, minority groups, et cetera. But we still think that there's untapped segments to be served and that is our most nascent third vertical that we're, we're growing and building. Well, I want to dig into those in a little bit. But before I do, you alluded to the milestones right at the beginning there. And I want to actually go through some of these. I think you've had a very interesting journey the last couple of years. And maybe we could um, start off with when you, as you said that, you know, you were incubated inside Customers Bank. And I guess the first question really is, why did you want to spin out from that? What was the reasoning? Yeah. I mean, sometimes we look back and we said in a perfect world, it would have been wonderful to continue that relationship. It was definitely a very positive one. We're forever grateful. Customers Bank did incubate us and really under their umbrella, we were able to grow into what we are today. The real impetus was a couple fold. So one is Customers Bank main core strategy was really deviating from a consumer strategy. They are commercially focused And we weren't in the purview of their main core strategy. Mm -hmm. And so it really became inevitable at some point that we would have to to part ways and that they could focus on their main core strategy. Number two is there are advantages uh, in our business model to be under 10 billion in assets and to be able to have that sort of more scalable, nimble, smaller bank feel as well. Mm -hmm. And, And Customers Bank is 20 plus billion in assets. And so there was a natural sort of desire for us to have more flexibility in being smaller in scale and to be more nimble and, and to really get the advantages of that as well. And so that was another impetus for, for parting ways and, and going in our own, own direction. 
Right, that's understood. So, but then you you spun off from Customers Bank, and then very very soon after, you decide to go public via SPAC. Tell us why did you want to do that so soon? Well, I think that you know, going back to your previous question, which is you know, why did you even divest? Right. So, kind of knowing that that our plan was to divest the business for our own personal company growth trajectories, it was more in alignment to go separately. Now, knowing that, we had a couple options, and we did explore a multitude of different options, strategic options, as well as you know, going public. We weighed a lot of options. We actually had a lot of different opportunities. COVID hit during that time. The world changed a little bit as well. The opportunity that we felt was you know, best for sort of accomplishing our goals was the SPAC direction. And so you know, SPACs during 2020 had a wild ride, and it was also the new, fun, exciting thing to take advantage of, quite frankly. And we were able to ride on that momentum. But what was so awesome about it was that, you know, SPACs have gotten a bad name for themselves. And really because a lot of them were able to go public without having the fundamentals in place, the profitability in place. And it was more about projections. So most IPOs, you can't share projections. In in the SPACs, you can. And I think that people got really excited about, you know, what became a bubble. Fortunately for BM Technologies is that we have exceeded our expectations and the guidance that we put out as a company and as a research analyst. So a lot of the concerns about SPACs really, you know, we're one of the best performing SPACs of last year. And so it was a great vehicle for us. It was the right timing. We were able to have a pipe investor do a $20 million raise on top of the SPAC, which adds credibility, et cetera. And uh, it was good timing. Things fell into place. And, and that's how we chose to pursue, you know, our divestiture plans. Okay. So then how's it been? You've been, you've had a, a handful of quarters now where you've, you know, you're reporting your, your earnings. Like apart from that, where you obviously have to have this quarterly reporting cycle as a public company, has anything else changed in the business as a consequence of you becoming public? I think that as a public company, you get more sort of awareness so I think it builds more clout of credibility as, as well in some ways. And so I think that that's been helpful just in terms of brand awareness and, and potential companies knowing about us for partnership, for BAS opportunities. So I think that's one. Number two, I'd say, is just having access to capital uh, much more readily uh, is a huge benefit. And that's what you know public company currency provides. I would say third is just as we've talked about the, the great resignation as a country, right? There's been so much attrition. I think it's more and more important for companies to create great workplaces, but also to have the currency uh, to be able to retain and attract good talent. And I think having access to the public markets really helped us in that way as well. So those are a couple of things. Makes sense. So so then you also had a, a big announcement here fairly recently talking about uh, buying a bank. You started off as a bank, you spun off, and now you're now you're acquiring a bank, First Sound Bank in Seattle. So, so two questions on that: Why buy a bank at all when you already you were part of a bank originally, and what attracted you to that particular bank? Number one, I think people get confused by the fact that we did sort of leave a bank, as you said, and then within not even a year we went and right. merged <laughs> with a bank or announced the merger. We're going through the right. regulatory. Google process. It's because, Peter, our conviction in the hybrid approach between a fintech and a charter hadn't changed. We spoke earlier on in the conversation, what was the impetus 
for the divestiture. And it really had nothing to do with our conviction around the combination or the vertical integration of a charter and a fintech. So that really didn't change. We had really divested for other reasons. And so it was one of our first priorities to go back to the operating model, which we think is the strongest for the business model that we have. And to us, that's having a charter. Mm -hmm. And I can talk more about why specifically. But to answer your second question, we did a nationwide search for the right bank partner. And it's really a sweet spot that you have to to define, find the right partner. And in First Down Bank, we're like thrilled to have found that partnership. I think it's a diamond in the rough for us in terms of just the meeting of the minds. The CEO, Marty Steele, I have a lot of respect for. We have to be able to work together to be successful in our pro forma bank. He's someone that we we can definitely see eye to eye. We have the same similar vision for a fintech and a charter combination. They're actually in the backyard of our largest client, T-Mobile in Seattle. They're the right sort of sweet spot size for us where you know, we, we didn't have a heavy balance sheet, but really could build that bank from the ground up. They had great asset quality. They were profitable. They have good regulatory relationships and standing. So there were many reasons that we found First Sound Bank attractive, and we're really grateful for that partnership. Right. And so you're based in Philadelphia, right? And they're in Seattle. So obviously, you've got a bit of geographical you know, space between you. I don't know how many branches I have, but as a small community bank, are you going to continue to operate that? Or what are you going to do differently once this deal closes? Yeah, so First Out Bank, actually, they're 150 million or so in assets. They actually only have one branch. So they're okay. not a branch heavy model. The whole thing is about really a, a national digital strategy. Mm-hmm. And so wherever it's headquartered is, is, is less important. It's more important from a CRA standpoint. So from a regulatory standpoint, to make sure that we're abiding by guidelines and, and making sure our CRA responsibilities are met that's going to be a priority in the Seattle, you know, region. But other than that, you know, this is a digital strategy and being able to have that charter where we can now deploy the deposits that we're so good at gathering in a low cost way and to be able to deploy them in earning assets is one of the biggest things that the charter provides. Okay. So, you know, there's obviously some fintechs now that have bought banks, not many, but there are some. And then, You've also got plenty of others who say they're not really interested. They're just going to maintain their bank partner relationships that they've had for a while. So this seems like there's becoming two different types of uh, approaches here. What do you think are the, what's the differentiator between the two different approaches, do you think? I think it's a really good question. And I think philosophically, you're absolutely right. These two different camps exist and we're obviously on one side of it. I think for those that really grew up in, in a tech sort of standpoint and don't have the banking sort of background and experience, kind of want to stay tech because I'm not going to lie, being a bank is is difficult. (laughs) But if you have the experience and you have the people that know how to navigate within that regulatory environment, it's a competitive edge, in my opinion. And so I can understand why those that aren't familiar with operating in that model just don't want to go there. And I think that they have to just build their uh, business models on scale. A lot of them are choosing to go global because you have to make up for those economics some way. And and a lot of them have to do it by really trying to outgrow and and have that scale and and growing globally. Right, right. Got it. Okay. You reported earnings just a few days ago when we were recording this on April 11th. I wonder if you could just take us through some of the highlights from your earnings report. It was for the calendar year 
2021, I believe. So what are some of the highlights that you can share? Hey, we're super proud. We're super excited. We had a stellar year. We had uh, record results for the fourth quarter, record results for the full year. We grew EBITDA by over 600%. We grew our revenue by over 40%. We grew our deposits by over a billion dollars, which equated to over 100% growth. So overall, it was in our customer sort of Acquisition costs remained low and our revenue per account on an annual basis was over you know, $180 per active account. So our metrics continue to be very strong, strong deposit growth, strong spend growth, strong customer acquisition growth, et cetera. And so we're very proud of the year, but that this is just one year out of we're building something. We're building something for the future. We're building ourselves into a true fintech bank one of the most competitive banking as a service providers. And beaded chartered institution opens up a lot more doors for us to become an asset generator, to be able to offer new products and services. So I'd say this is this is really just the beginning for us. But I, I am very proud of the team and what we were able to create over the last year. Right. Great. So I, I want to switch gears and talk about banking as a service for a little bit, the, particularly the banking as a service for brands. Maybe, maybe let's start off with an update on the on the T-Mobile partnership because I mean that's been around now for a, a few years I believe and when you first announced it I was kind of curious like T-Mobile really why on earth would they want to be opening up bank accounts but so take us through how can you update us on that partnership I think a lot of people were scratching their heads um, <laughs> when we launched this and and to be honest like we saw the reasons why it could be compelling because we were in the weeds of it we had the strategy discussions we had the relationships there at T-Mobile. We had gone through the RFP process, so we had more insight. But at the end of the day, it was an unproven model, right? Mm-hmm. And we've been really lucky at how successful it's been. And I think it provides confidence to the greater banking as a service sort of segment to be able to look at our T-Mobile sort of case study, you could say. And I think it's encouraging other brands to start offering what we're doing today. You know, T-Mobile is a public company. I talk about it in our earnings, you know, our earnings call as well where you know, they fall into what our, we call our new business segment because I, you know, we need to respect that they're a public company and cannot give direct sort of numbers, et cetera. But I can talk about our new business vertical, which you know, could be a proxy for the T-Mobile sort of side of our business. And over the last you know, two and a half years or so, three years, we've been able to, to grow that new business vertical. We're at about a billion point three in deposits, You know, our average balances are 10,000 plus, which is insane. About 18 to 20% of the portfolio we call active users or transactors. And this means that they're transacting at least five times a month and they're a direct depositor. And this 18 to 20% of this portfolio that's active, their average balances are, you know, around 4,000. And they are on an annualized basis spending $17,000 a year. So this is a very, very dedicated, loyal, engaged customer segment. And so, you know, again, it's new business vertical as a proxy for T-Mobile. And so these are good sort of round numbers for you to see how that portfolio is really performing. And the opportunities like became bigger than we thought because T-Mobile was T-Mobile when we launched and it became T-Mobile plus Sprint soon after, which opened up a new opportunity for us. And within T-Mobile, there's also the Metro Group that we've also rolled out to since we started this relationship. And so a lot of great momentum building in within different channels within T-Mobile, building out the product set. So earlier this year, we launched on top of the checking account that we have, 
With T-Mobile, we launched a savings account. We launched a really attractive feature called True Name by MasterCard, which allows people, you know, as the world is changing, we're becoming more inclusive, we're becoming more mindful of this, and allows T-Mobile Money customers to be able to put their identified name, the name that they identify with on their card, et cetera. And that's just one of the awesome roadmap that we have planned for this year uh, for the T-Mobile Money product. Right. And so I'm curious about sort of the the whole, like these non-bank brands. There's been a movement, as you were really a trailblazer, but now there's more companies focusing on it. There's more companies talking about it. This sort of, you know, banking as a service for brands. I'd love to get a sense of you know, what type of brand do you think? I mean, obviously, you've got to have a pretty large national brand to even consider this, I imagine. But who's it best for this type of relationship? The way that we think about it, you know, I think you can kind of go, there's some banking as a service providers that go really small. And it's like, hey, if you want this like sandbox access, you're a really small fintech, you have 10 customers right now, you can go use our APIs and launch this. That's not what we view as an ideal customer for us. For us, we are looking at scale. For us, we're not going to have 10 different players a year. We're going to have one meaningful, significant player every 12 to 18 months is really what we aspire for. What we look for in a partner is, I would say, threefold. So one, it's a brand that has trust built in. It has emotional connection built in. There's loyalty built in. And we're able to leverage that. Number two, that there's access to a scaled customer base. So in the millions is the hope for the type of partners that we work with. And third, uh, it's a nice to have, which is, is there some sort of transactional relationship that exists between that brand and their customers so that when you interject the bank account, it actually helps make something more seamless in in an ecosystem that is already in flow and already happening, but it becomes a new payment mechanism, a new value add, and a more seamless experience. And so those are kind of the three things that we typically like to work for. And so then when when someone's sort of accessing the app, maybe you can just use T-Mobile as an example since it actually is in market. It's branded T-Mobile money, right? I mean, how, like, I'm just thinking they have the loyalty with that customer base. How does it actually work when they load up the app, they're viewing their bank account? Where's your brand and where's T-Mobile's brand? So I think that from a direct-to-consumer brand building, that's not our priority. You know, our priority is to really put the brand forward. But where our priority becomes from a regulatory standpoint is that we service these accounts. And so the customer really can't have any confusion. Otherwise, it can become a UDAP issue, et cetera, if you're familiar with banking. And so our obligation is to make sure that the customer knows who's the sponsor bank behind this and who is servicing these accounts. And so that's where our brand will show up. So every time you kind of see the FDIC accounts held at customers bank, you'll see BMTX mentioned too. So people know that we service the accounts and we're powering the technology. Right. And is, I presume the intention is to move those from customers bank to when you have the new banking entity under the one umbrella, is that, or are you just going to do that going forward for new customers? So, you know, the intent is that over time, we do bring over the deposits that we already have and we do it in a prudent way and we do it at a pace that the regulators, you know, are blessing. We will have to do a capital raise simultaneous with moving over the deposits because as you know, at at a bank, you need to have strong capital ratios. And so that will be a process. It doesn't happen overnight, but our intent is that 
pretty quickly we're, we're able to eventually move those deposits over to our own balance sheet and then have net new deposit acquisition originate from our from our new charter. Okay. Okay. Cool. So, so then I want to talk about the college student offering. It's another really interesting thing you, I think you guys do. Not many companies focusing on this demographic besides all the banks that still try and sign people up when they come on campus. But I'm curious about like, how do you grow this business? And is this just a, a one college at a time type sign up process that you're, you know, because every college is going to be a little bit different. How are you growing it? Yeah, so our main touch point to customers or to potential student customers is to the college-university relationships that we build. So as I said before, we have about 750 universities that we're contractually have relationships with today. They do take time to build. Last year, we built 16 new college relationships. And so you can kind of see the pace at which you know you grow. But when you grow, there's a lot of stickiness. We have a 99% retention rate with our colleges and universities year over year. So once we build that relationship, we're able to show our value and able to keep them. How do we grow those relationships? We have a sales force that is really focused on the higher education landscape and they have relationships and we go out there. And again, we help these colleges and universities uh, save about $150,000 to $250,000 a year. So a quarter of a million dollars, and we, you know, are able to do things in a very compliant way, serve their students better, and potentially offer them a bank account. And for underserved demographics, that's an attractive thing to be able to do. And so that's how we're building out the funnel. And we do have the greatest market share today. We have about a third of the market today, a third of the schools, or one in every three college-bound students goes to one of the schools that we do business with. But it is slow and steady growth. Right. And I imagine, I mean, because obviously you've had this product for a little while. So there's, you know, students that are graduating, going out into the workforce. Are you finding that the retention maintains once they have that tie to the college sort of removed? Yeah, no, retention is, is a huge focus of ours. We definitely have seen retention improve over time. I did mention this on our last earnings call where I also see that there's a significant opportunity for improvement there too, which is just icing on the cake. You know, this higher ed vertical for us is already profitable on a standalone basis. And so it's really, truly icing on the cake to be able to retain these customers even more than we do today. And part of our strategy of doing that is to be able to offer more products and more services to these students so they see even more value as they unenroll or graduate into different segments of life. And that's what we're investing in now. Right, right. Got it. Okay. We haven't mentioned crypto yet. And obviously, if you're dealing with college students, there uh, there's a lot of them that are talking about it. Have you had incoming demand for crypto services? I mean, what what are you guys planning with uh, with crypto? There's no denying it. So one in five Americans today owns Bitcoin. I think Americans are starting to think about in general, how can they incorporate crypto in their overall financial planning? And our students are, are no different. Our overall customers, whether they're coming from T-Mobile, et cetera, are, are no different. And so our priority is, is really to, over time, not just crypto, but really build an overall digital banking platform where you have a lot of products and services that these customers would value over their life cycle, whether that's banking, more lending products, more advice-driven products, more products around investing, insurance, and then obviously, as you mentioned, crypto. So what are our plans? It's on our roadmap. 
we want to make sure as we're going through the regulatory process that we feel that the regulators understand why we want to eventually play in this space, why it's to value to our customers, how can we make sure we're educating our customers so that they make the most prudent decisions. And I think, you know, that's equally as important to us as we become a bank is managing consumer demand and products that they want with also the regulatory environment and making sure that we roll them out in a safe, secure way for our customers. Right, right. Okay. So last question then, we've talked about a lot of things that you guys are working on. What do you view as the most exciting opportunity for BMTX going forward? So many things, as I said, in one year, if we were able to crash course, you know, so many things, like I can't even imagine what we have, you know, in store for us over the coming years. I've said it since the beginning, since we've gone public, you know, we're a mission-driven company. We really want to create a digital banking platform and a financial experience that is around affordability, transparency, more consumer-friendly products. And that's at the heart of what we do. But we're also in the in the business of, of building. And you know, our goal is that we're able to create a business that is five hundred million to a billion dollars in valuation over the next three to five years. And so to do that, we have to continue to grow. We're growing through becoming a fintech bank, adding on that asset generation component that can also be new products and services that we're offering to our, our customers. Number two is to continue to build our banking as a service platform you know, with our existing relationships, bringing new relationships on. And we're really excited about what we have in store this year for that. Three, our student customers, as you said, right? It's about focusing on engagement and retention. We think we're really early innings of what we can do there, which provides huge opportunities for growth for us as well. And and the last point is to become a truly comprehensive digital banking platform where a consumer can go and, and feel like their banking needs are met from banking to lending to investing, insurance, crypto, and advice. And so a lot in store for us, but at the end of the day, it's it's in alignment with our mission and with our growth and our strategy. Okay, we'll have to leave there. Well, best of luck, lovely, and it's always great chatting with you. And yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you, Peter. So happy to be here. I want to go back to that point that we were discussing about you know, whether fintechs are buying banks versus just maintaining their their existing bank partnership. And I, I just, it seems to me that the fintechs that are looking to have a major national scale that are really are looking in the millions of customers, I just feel like it's inevitable that they're eventually going to have a banking license themselves, whether it's through acquisition or applying for a bank. They're Economics are so much better that way, and we, particularly once they go public, I could really see some some pressure down the road. We saw it with Lending Club. They've gone and acquired a bank and, and really have turned their the economics of their business around and becoming very profitable. So I could see that that's something, obviously, um, Lavaline believes it's important to have a banking license and own a bank. So I just feel that We go five years down the road and all the major fintechs, I believe, are going to have a banking license. We'll see if I'm right. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.